Do you want some more drama? <laughs> okay. Is it going to be all right? Hello and welcome to All Through a Lens. This is the podcast about film photography where we discuss a little more than just film photography. I'm Vanya. And I'm Eric. We got a show for you this evening. Eric, what have you been up to? I finally started processing the shots that I took for the Nez Pierce Trail book that I'm working on. I shot everything on Cat Labs 4x5, and I, I like their older but not exactly classic look. Uh, I'll definitely be ta- talking about the, the book more as I put it together, but for now, I'm just getting the photos in order, getting things kind of straightened away. So uh, what have you been up to? Well, I went to Waco, Texas to surf a wave pool with a a group of 20 people. Um, I shot some 35. I haven't finished all the rolls. They're sitting in my camera still. Hopefully, I'll get those developed soon. Also, I received a camera this week. Yeah, you received uh, an Exacta that I sent. But we're going to get to that actually next episode. Yes. But I'm really excited for you to uh, be shooting that. You've shot a little bit of it. I have. I really enjoy it. It's very interesting using the waist level on it. That's right. So that's, yeah, it's just fun. Yeah, I I really dig the camera. So I guess uh, first up, we should probably talk about the big announcement that's been heralded for two straight weeks every day on social media, Ilford's new product. And as it turned out, Ilford's new product is not new, really. They're taking their ortho line from sheet film and moving it into roll film. And that's actually kind of cool. Yeah, it's exciting. I'll shoot it in 120. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to shoot it in 120. I've shot it in 4x5. I, I like it. I'm, I thought maybe we'd get something a, a bit more interesting or a bit bigger with the amount of hype. Yeah, whoever's doing their social media is killing it. So give that kid a raise. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I'm okay with it. I'm kind of excited to shoot it. I'm not as excited as I wanted to be about whatever they're introducing. So, Ilford, when it comes to your promotional campaigns... We're not mad. We're just disappointed. So, do you want to check the answering machine? Sure. Last episode, we asked people to call in to answer the question about locations. We asked, is there a location that gave you way more photos than you expected? Someplace where you just kind of arrived. You weren't expecting a whole bunch, but it really delivered. And we've got a few calls to get through, so let's check them out. Hello. No one is available to take your call. Please leave a message after the tone. Hey there, this is Robert again. Just found another one of these derelict yards along the waterfront where boats and cars go to die. And it just occurs to me that water is probably worth thinking about when you're looking for something to shoot. There's industry there, always derelict things, and in nature there's animals. It's what forms some more interesting things on the mountain. And besides wind, it's one of the most interesting features of the desert, even though most of the time you never see it. So, with no intention to take a picture of water at all, it might be worth thinking about. Yeah, I I always mean to take more photos of water crossings. Actually, I always mean to have more photos of water crossings. I'm always looking for one. Like, oh, I want something with water in it. I just never have anything. I do a lot of desert photography. Yes, you do. But you... Yeah, I do some water. You do a lot of water. Uh, I would like to do some more underwater, specifically, you know, kelp forests, things like that. Sure. 
Hey guys, Mike here. On the topic of a location giving you more than you expected, there is a little alley downtown here. It's called Trade Alley. But in that alley, the light is always perfect, and there are a lot of garage doors, there are brick walls, there are painted walls, there are textures, there's fire escapes, there's... It's just endless down there. And... Honestly, they should probably just rename it Portrait Alley because the majority of portraits I've took of my kids over the last few years have been in that little alley. So it's pretty crazy. All right. Take care, guys. Ooh, I really love places like that where the light just always seems to be perfect no matter what time of the day it is. I had a place like that. Uh, my old house had a backyard with a very weathered fence and I would shoot portraits back there all the time. Eric, do you shoot portraits ever? No, you know, I've, I've never, never actually shot a portrait ever. Not <laughs> once. I don't know what to do with them. I don't know what to do with people. So <laughs> no, I've never shot a portrait, but I probably should head down the portrait alley. Cause I, I don't think light's my issue, but you know, maybe I'd be inspired. Hi, Eric and Vanya. This is Jason at Ninley one on Instagram and I N L Y O N E. Uh, since I started shooting film again, I've been drawn to uh, take pictures in and around the waterways and streams that run through the city I live in. Uh, the thing is, a lot of that um, natural waterway was dredged or rerouted or paved over when the city was developed, so we're not really talking about lovely river scenes. Um, still, there's been a lot of interest in the uh, erosion and some urban blight and general infrastructure side of things as well as some natural beauty so that's uh, been a lot more fruitful than I might have expected as I've been shooting it recently uh, keep up the good work thanks congratulations on shooting film again yeah welcome back I really like the idea of shooting waterways through cities. It's like the veins of the city. I always wonder how it would look or how it looked a uh, hundred years ago. You know, I live in LA, so all the waterways are paved and not very pristine anymore. That's just bonkers to me. Hello, Vanya. Hello, Eric. This is Jasper calling from the UK. I just wanted to leave you a quick message on your answering machine. Um, last month, I spent two weeks traveling across the Scottish Highlands, and there were great photos to be shot every few hundred yards. But the location that surprised me the most was the last stop on my way back south, uh, the Royal Botanical Gardens in Edinburgh. I love greenhouses they are already, and they instill this solemn feeling in me, probably comparable with what some people might feel when they enter a cathedral. In the end, the smells are magnificent too, obviously. Um, the milky glass, however, and the, the plants themselves produce a lovely, soft light, perfect for black and white photos, in my opinion. I tried to focus on the patterns and the textures of the plants and the flowers, um, and filled over two rolls of 120, uh, which was way more than I ever expected. Okay, first, Jasper's voice is... <laughs> wow. I know. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I kind of got lost there. I'm not sure I heard anything he actually said, which is horrible. I heard every. Oh, did you? <laughs> you just you listened with rapt attention. Yes, I did. Mm -hmm. I get it. I get it. I have a plant-based project that I'm kind. It's been kind of rattling in my head for, for a while now. 
And I keep seeing people like last week, we talked about Neil Piper, who had some flowers and a zine that he did. And now with Jasper, I'm just like, okay, all these things are, are rattling around even more in my head to like, oh, I got to do this. I got to do this. Do you shoot plants at all? Uh, I used to. Okay. A little bit more, but no, not not that much. But the kelp forest, that would be plants, right? Underwater. Kelp is plants. Yeah, that yeah. counts. Uh, trees, I guess, ferns. I don't know. I guess as a whole, maybe just like as far as, you know, kind of trying to capture like the color of the scene more than just the plant itself. Okay, sure. Yes, I would say, in fact, I was very surprised by one location, Fort Bragg, California, in the summer of 2016. I was there to take pictures of surfers, and it was just the wrong time of year to be doing it. What I found instead was a local shaper living out in the woods who turned out to be a former special effects person, and I spent the entire day with him talking about the history of surfing, shaping, and all of the things that he had done on film and since, which included building custom ukuleles. It was quite the day. I really, really enjoy spending time with shapers. It's a little difficult to shoot with how they have the lighting set up in the rooms. But if you ever get an opportunity to spend some time with anybody who works with their hands, I would definitely take it. And by shapers, you you guys mean people who shape surfboards? Yes. Yeah. I think we should answer this. I think so. So for me, I thought about about this quite a bit. I think it's National Grasslands, which I realize is incredibly vague. But I think think it's my answer. It's not that I don't love national parks, but national grasslands are something completely different. uh, Whereas national parks have visitor centers and campgrounds and tourist places, most national grasslands have none of that. They have, don't have visitor centers or interpretive kiosks. Sometimes there's not even signs. Sometimes you don't even know you're there. <laughs> uh, I'm okay with people. <laughs> I mean, something you really have to pay attention to the signs on the road, you know, like leaving National Grassland, entering National Grassland. Um, <laughs> so basically just look for grass and you're in the grassland. No, see, no, see, okay, that's the thing. And like, I know what I'm fine with that. I'm fine with you thinking that grasslands just huge swaths of boring flatness, but they're not. But I'm completely okay with people avoiding them. Uh, this past summer, as well as the summer before, and even the summer before that, I hit a half dozen or so national grasslands, and each had its own feel, its own features, its own hills, its own uh, peaks and, and mountains. Uh, some, actually quite a lot, are inundated by energy and gas contractors, so you have oil wells and, and things like that out there. But some are, are really pristine and really remote. The National Forestry Service oversees the grasslands, and often, but not always, they incorporate them into national forests. This makes figuring out stuff like boundaries almost impossibly challenging. For many, it's probably not worth the hassle, and it it really is a hassle. But for me, I enjoy the challenge. So, Fanya, you? I keep on thinking I'm going to pick the ocean or the redwoods. And those two choices would be obvious, but since revisiting Highway 395, I'm going to pick Eastern Sierras. Nice. Yeah, it's... So magical. The drive is just beautiful. Uh, both sides of the highway, 
basically have two different landscapes. There's deserts on one side and then obviously the Sierras on the other. Uh, there's a lot of things to see and I definitely took way more photographs than I anticipated. Uh, I didn't have enough time to see everything I wanted, but it's okay because I plan on getting back there. It's not too far of a drive for me. Uh, the highway stretches all the way up to Canada. I don't know much about it um, past California, but I do plan on driving the entire route someday. Now, we we talked about 395. Was it last episode or the episode before? I think it was last episode. I don't know anything about 395 in California, but <laughs> 395 through Oregon and Washington, especially Oregon, is absolutely beautiful. You would love... I mean, I know how you feel about California, but oh my God. I is, think it's a very pretty place. It's so... like. The highway is so amazing. It just, you think that there's nothing else after this one part, and then there's another thing that you are just completely in awe. And obviously, the sunrise and sunsets are just gorgeous. Where I was, I was just like in the Lone Pine area. But if you go further up, you reach Mammoth Lakes, which mm -hmm. is, you know, a very popular place. And the Yosemite East Entrance, uh, just past that, there's Mono Lake, which is the kind of weirdest lake I've ever been to. Uh, I highly recommend place. it. <laughs> yeah. And then Bodie. The dog. No, the ghost town. Oh, the ghost town. <laughs> Nobody's ever photographed that before. Never. Not once. Nope. <laughs> Halloween season, we thought we'd dig up some ghoulish photographic delights for you. First up, Fanya will tell us a bit about the Victorian practice of post-mortem photography. With Halloween around the corner, we find ourselves surrounded by images of death and dying. Even so, our outlook on death is very different. Most of us don't know what to do or say when a family member or friend has passed. We hear about death on the news, cold and emotionless, causing us to be more disconnected and distant from the reality that we will all meet our own demise. We were not always like this. In the 1800s, we were obsessed with death, similar to how we are obsessed with sex in modern times. Victorians knew death much more intimately. Without modern vaccinations and medicines, it was always near. So much so that it was not uncommon to wait until a child was a year old until you named them. Death was not exactly scary. It was often a relief and a chance to be reunited with family members who had gone before. By the mid-19th century, photography had given Victorians a new way to immortalize the living and the dead. Postmortem photography may seem macabre to us now, but in this time period, with painted portraits being so costly, it was really in many cases the only photograph taken of loved ones. While infants and children were posed in beds or held by their mothers to give the appearance they were just peacefully sleeping, adults were propped up, sometimes standing, to create the illusion that they were still alive. Postmortem photography of the Victorian era attempted to blur the line between the recently dead and those left behind. So, okay, how how did all of this start? Like, where did the idea of postmortem photography or postmortem anything come from? Well, the idea of memorializing the dead has been around basically forever. But the origins of postmortem photography predate photography itself. In the late 1700s, people in mourning made memorial embroideries. Often these would depict the mourners themselves sitting next to the grave of the deceased. 
Yeah, I'm I'm looking at a couple of the embroideries. They are. They're they're embroideries framed with people at grave sites mourning. They're in black. Except there's one, there's there's a woman sitting next to a gravestone, uh holding a is it a handkerchief, it looks like? Yes. Yeah. So after the embroidery idea fizzled out or went away, what did they do next? Yes, when printing became cheaper, the printed memorial took their place. Now the graveyard scenes were mass-produced lithographs. Memorial paintings were kind of an answer to this. This gave way to paintings of the dead. Since these were expensive to produce, when photography came into its own in the mid-1800s, it seemed like a natural progression. They seemed both new and traditional all at the same time. So we're looking at a few post-mortem photos right now, and... We've most of us have seen quite a few of these, and so the typical photo of of a woman, for example, would depict her holding a flower. Uh, the photographer might tint her cheeks and the flower itself to bring a little bit more life to them. For men, things were usually a little more straightforward. It looks like there were often not tinted lips or cheeks, but rather he'd just be simply laid in a bed or or a coffin. Most of the photos we'll be talking about today can be found in the book. Beyond the Dark Veil, Postmortem and Morning Photography by the Thanatos Archive. The postmortem photos were almost always taken in the home. The recently deceased would be displayed in the parlor. Photographs were taken next to windows to let in natural light. Family members would pose with them, sometimes propping them up on a special stand. If it was a child, brother and sister would pose next to their departed sibling, which sounds pretty awful. The one that really hits me, though, in the feels is the mothers holding their child, usually in a rocking chair, probably the same one that they use to lull and calm them in life. Yeah, this is that's those are the rough ones. Uh, What I'm looking at now is a woman dressed in her morning clothes. So she's in black holding her son who's dressed in a white gown. This is a common burial gown. Uh, Again, the cheeks were hand painted on both the mother and the son. There are other types of death-related photos as well, such as deathbed and pre-mortem photography, a final living photograph. Most of these images give you a glimpse of stillness, resignation, and an acceptance of their fate. Uh, There were also mourning photos. Yes. And these are a little... Dramatic. Yeah, I'd say so. Uh, We're looking at, at two different photos here. One shows a group of five women dressed all in black with handkerchiefs over their heads. You can't recognize any of them. They're they're crying into their handkerchiefs. And in another, two women, I believe, are sobbing into the same handkerchief. (laughs) And okay, this isn't. It's, it's funny, and yet it's not funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it is funny, because it took about 15 to 30 seconds to expose these photos. So these were incredibly staged, but every photo was incredibly staged. Yes. But still, mourning isn't something that you typically stage. Though, it was the Victorian era, so it was dramatic and about death. As a photographer myself, I'm very much obsessed with documenting people and places I see. The fleeting moment and the way I cherish them are something I've done my whole life. I am unapologetically sentimental. (laughs) Though it has sometimes been difficult for me to take in, I've enjoyed researching the portraits of these people. Some are nameless and some of their stories are lost forever, but not all lost. No? Not all? <laughs> Not all. Is there something you want to tell me about? Uh, I have a few stories. I could tell you the story of the Kellers. Okay. All right. I'm looking at their photo right now. Mm-hmm. It's a little sad. They're uh, Mr. and Mrs. Keller 
are in a coffin and their their baby who they obviously loved very dearly is huddled there with them so there's all three of them in a, in a coffin it's it's a little dark but kind of sweet it's just a sweet a sweet story right tell me this is a sweet story well, Mrs. Keller thought Mr. Keller was having an affair, so oh. she shot him through the chest okay. and then killed her baby before taking her own life. Okay, no. No, that, that's not sweet at all. <laughs> uh, Jesus. Uh, how about how about something a little lighter? I have another story about Old Rip. Okay. Old Rip is, I'm looking at the photo, uh, he's, he's, a, he's a lizard. Yeah, he's a, a lizard. lizard. He's a horn. He's a horned lizard in a in a coffin. He's a lizard yes. in a coffin. Yes, his and his name, Old Rip, is actually it's he was named after Rip Van Winkle. Go on. So Old Rip was a four year old boy's pet lizard. His father was a county clerk in Eastland, Texas. In 1897, the town decided to make a time capsule and cement it into the cornerstone of the new courthouse. For reasons lost to history, they decided to include Old Rip. Old Rip, who had died already? No, he was still alive. Oh. (laughs) Yes. So fast forward 31 years later, the courthouse was scheduled to be demolished, which drew a crowd of 3,000 to view the capsule cracked open. Bets were placed on the fate of Old Rip. Supposedly, they opened the time capsule to find Old Rip still alive, with worn down horns and a broken leg, probably trying to escape. It is believed that he was in a state of hibernation. <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> For 31 years. 31 years hibernation. <laughs> Sounds impossible? Yes. Yes, it is. Reptiles can brumate for maybe a half a year, but it's more like a sort of dormant state than hibernation. But still, that's the story the town went with. The new old rip became an instant celebrity, touring the country, meeting President Calvin Coolidge, and getting a write-up in Ripley's Believe It or Not. Unfortunately, 11 months after he was released from the capsule, the new old Rip died of pneumonia. He was embalmed and placed in a velvet-lined glass-top casket. This is the casket that is in the photo. Yes. Okay, so that that was the new old Rip, not the old Rip. I'm assuming so, yes. Okay, go on. Then, in 1973, the new old Rip was stolen. But soon the fancy coffin was found at the county fairgrounds. As it turned out, new old Rip was replaced with yet another updated version. So I'm seeing that you can still view new, new old Rip at the new, new courthouse in Eastland, Texas. So, okay, I'm, look, I'm sure this is all true. It's kind of it's messed up. Have you, have you got anything else? Uh, you want to see a picture of a well-dressed man sitting with his dead dog? No, I don't. I don't really want to see that. Maybe we should just wrap this shit up. Okay, the postmortem photographs we've been talking about are somewhat haunting, but completely fascinating and beautiful to me. Clues of their deaths and lives revealed in these lasting images give me a glimpse into the past. They probably felt the same joys, passions, and sadness in their hearts that we feel and experience today. Someone loved them, and the photographs that have survived in loving memory are gone but not forgotten. Thanks, Vanya. Oh, you're so welcome. <laughs> so you you had a little bit of trouble with this, with researching this. I did. It was rough. Yeah. I mean, you kind of had a bit of a spiral. I did. I got the book, which is really good. So if you guys are really super into old tintypes and dead pig- <laughs> And dead people- <laughs> 
dead people. And who isn't? Uh, Beyond the Dark Veil is a really nice book. And it has some writing in it, but about 180 photographs. Wow. And yeah. And I when I look at photos, like I, I look at photos and, you know, take them in. And it was... It was kind of hard to get through. So there is kind of a weird factor to it. And most people will see them and just kind of like, oh, man, it's fucked up. But you kind of take it in like a more personal way, it seems. Yeah, I think I do. I think I'm just very empathetic, you know, in general. I just, you know, care about shit. So uh, it's it's rough. And then, you know, having to research and write something was I felt like I didn't want it to be about how I'm gawking at these photos or anything like that. Like I wanted to be respectful. So I tried my best. I hope you guys liked it. You're going to get a subscription to the Thanatos archive, which was about 10 bucks for two months. Did you ever do that? I did. Did you do that before or after your spiral? Uh, Before this. Okay. Have you looked at it since then? No. Okay. I'll get back to researching a little bit more, probably in a couple weeks. I'm, really, really interested in just tintypes in general. I absolutely love them. So this is kind of exciting because we have a guest today. So yeah, we thought we would give Jennifer Frowler Weber a call. She is a tintype photographer, shoots a lot of older things, a lot of older cameras, expired film, and again, makes her own tintypes. So let's give her a call. Hello. Hello, Jennifer. Yeah. Hey, this is Eric and Vanya from All Through a Lens. Hey. Oh, hey, you guys. Hey. We were talking about old-timey photography, and we thought we'd give you a call because you take old-timey photos. That's me. Yeah. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you called the right person. Uh, we're first going to get a question out of the way. We, we do an answering machine segment where we ask our listeners to call in to answer certain questions that we posed the week before. And this time we ask them, is there a place that surprised you with the number of photos that it's given you? Absolutely. Okay. And you're going to laugh. It's actually my house and the property that it sits on. I'd have to say maybe 50 to 60% of the photos that I post are probably taken on my property. So I live in an old house that was built in the 1890s in a historic district of Illinois. And we're right next to the river. So I've got some great depth. <laughs> Even inside, I can get some great natural light going. There are a ton of windows. So no matter what time of day it is, there's some good sunlight coming in somewhere. And I could usually stage a really good still life or get a great portrait of somebody, um, depending on you know where the light's hitting my house. So all those windows are great. As long as I use a narrow depth of field, I can usually kind of mask that I'm shooting in the same area. And using a, a narrow depth of field is like my favorite way to shoot. So, um, so yeah, and it's convenient too, because with the tintypes that I shoot, um, you know, everything's close. I got my dark room. I have, you know, where I wash it off, where I develop it, where I, I pour the plate. So it's, it's actually really great. I've been able to utilize it as much as I have. That's so perfect. <laughs> so ideal. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm one lucky girl. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, okay, so let's back up a bit and then tell yeah. us a, a little bit how you got into shooting tintypes because it's kind of a kind of a novel thing to be doing photography wise. I had never like actually gotten into photography. I had a um, an SLR digital camera that I purchased like maybe 
I don't know, when I was 17, 18. So I shot photos digitally of like birthdays and like if I went on a trip somewhere with my family or boyfriend or whatever. I just had it around because I just liked having like a nicer camera to capture these moments in my life because I'm just a nostalgic person, like most photographers. Um, so I, uh, I liked to vacation in weird historic places. I don't go to the beach. My husband and I are just, we just usually go somewhere that's on a historic registry. So we ended up three years ago taking a trip to Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, which is pretty fitting. Nice. And I remember, yeah, I remember thinking like, oh gosh, we need to take our photo, like an authentic old photo. And I mean, this is literally where I was three years ago, you guys, I'm not kidding. I was like, we need to take one of those old photos that looks really legit not the stupid digital i mean sepia toned ones the ones that's legitimate analog like photography and i looked up uh vps gettysburg that's where i stumbled across when i was researching where we could have this done you know it was going to be like one of the highlights of our trip you know just to commemorate it um because it was like during our anniversary and everything which was kind of cool and uh, that's where I stumbled on the name Tintype. And I was like, okay, that's it. That's it. So, um, so yeah, we, we drove there. Uh, we got to uh, the studio, you know, somewhere throughout the week that we had stayed there. And I think it was under a different owner at the time, but same building. And the lady that did it was amazing, like super skilled. Like she could do it in her sleep, you guys. Mm. Uh, they dressed us up in like great period clothing. We looked like we walked straight out of the 1800s. It was awesome. And uh, so she sat us and uh, she used these really cool, I forget the exact name of the stands, but something to hold our heads straight and our bodies in the same position so we wouldn't move because with the long exposures, I want to say it was between 15 to 30 seconds this exposure took. We couldn't move at all. I mean, you're going to get that blurring. So uh, she walked us through it after she took the exposure as much as she could. She had to do the developing portion of it within a dark room. But when she brought it out, this is where I like fell head over heels. She brought it out. And um, you have to understand about a tintype that it's it's basically, um, it doesn't have a negative. It's its own negative. So she brought it out to us. And when uh, before she puts it in the fixer bath, it is a negative. When you put it into the fixer, it turns into a positive image. So she pops it into the fixer. And I see the image go from a negative to a positive. And I'm like blown away. I'm, I can't believe this just came out of that room. And that's me and my husband, you know, sitting there in this authentic, um, you know, 1800s garb you know looking like we just stepped out of like you know over 100 in some years ago so that's really like how it all started I mean I had 11 we drove there so I had 11 hours on the way home to just think about how I was going to try to figure out how to do this you know this whole process I was researching and and I was like finding a lot of people actually out there that were doing it at home or in their own studios and, and it was encouraging. So basically, yeah, so I sourced all of these, uh, all this equipment, all this information. I pieced the chemistry together through most of online and talking to a lot of great people within the community that were really willing to help out. And don't get me wrong. I mean, it was so frustrating. I can't tell you how long it took to, to get a successful image. I mean, 
months, months of trying. I mean, it was, if the plate was touching metal and, you know, it was coated in this uh, collodion emulsion and it was dipped in silver and you did the exposure, you know, the metal would contaminate the image entirely and you wouldn't get a picture at all. So, I mean, it was a lot, a lot, a lot of troubleshooting and figuring out what was wrong. And, you know, it was little stuff that, you know, anybody could miss. So, um, but it's so, I guess in that sense, it's just, so rewarding and something that's going to stay with me for the rest of my life. It's just, it's really fills my heart with a lot of joy, like the whole process and just, you know, trying to keep that alive in today's world where everything's so digital and everything is so quick and easy. Just, just having that ability is just fantastic for me. Do you find, so, you know, you're shooting film as well now. Is there certain things that you find more suitable for tintypes? Like, do you, you're like, okay, I'm not going to shoot this with film because I'm going to do a tintype, or do you do both? I think if I'm going to do a still life and I want it to come across the way that I envision it, I will definitely do a tintype just because it has like the spirituality to it. It has this like nature that's kind of transcendent. Also, I think portraits do really well with obviously tintype photography. I think you capture something about the person you're you're taking that image of that again kind of transcends, you know, place and time and it 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 just kind of brings out a different aspect of them and entirely. So, I guess if I had the choice, I would definitely opt to do a portrait or a still life in tintype, but if I don't have that option, I usually just move on to like an old box camera or maybe, you know, some old film from like the 1940s or something like that. (laughs) I've been shooting box cameras or just like old vintage cameras for a while. Um, And I guess what I was looking for is this quality that I was seeing in a lot of um, like old silent movies or a lot of old photographs that I would find. I'm kind of a, I don't know why I go into like these antique stores and I find these images that really speak to me, inspire me. And I think that's kind of where I get a lot of my inspiration from like stuff, images and captures and exposures that aren't necessarily super well done or but I, to me they're really beautiful and interesting so i guess i'm looking for in a in a lens and in a cam in an old vintage camera that quality that i'm seeing in these old vintage photos that i'm in antique photos that i'm finding in these antique stores so the brownie six flash 620 was the first camera lens and camera that i had shot film through like modern day film they gave me this really dreamy ethereal like people had really creamy skin tones that kind of glowed like they would in like old silent movies. And I was getting this detail in the grass and the foreground and the background that honestly mimicked a tintype in some sense, like just the way that the tones worked all together. And I mean, it was, I don't know, it was a beautiful thing. I think I might've cried a little bit when it happened. (laughs) (laughs) I just keep talking about, I can't say enough good things about it. I mean, yeah, and what I spent like $15 on it. And I think I maybe, I don't, I think I found it in a vintage shop and I was like, what the hell, you know, I'll see what happens. And just to get that, that aesthetic and that look and get like, I think eight or nine shots out of, um, you know, re-spooled 120 onto 620 film is like, is like means a lot to me. And it's just so much easier to kind of pull that around with me if, you know, I don't want to take out my, you know, my dark room and my large format camera and everything else that goes with it. So I guess that's why I was so excited about finding that brownie. Okay, your photos definitely have a feminine touch. Uh, I don't think that 
a male photographer could, you know, set up your little, you know, like your tin type shots where you, you know, place the items out. It's absolutely gorgeous. I love them. Um, do you find it more challenging uh, to be noticed as a photographer since, you know, it's such a male dominated field, especially with like tin types? Do you think it's more males or do you think that a lot of women are doing this too? I honestly um, have to say there are some fierce female photographers that are out there that are kind of balancing things out. Um, I've come across a few that I've been really inspired by who are just like kicking ass in that field. Um, One, I need to shout out to Emily White. She, I think it's based out of Virginia. Her uh, Instagram name is RVA Tintype. Uh, she is amazing. She has actually her own tintype studio where she does portraits, but she also goes out and she shoots in the field and she does nature shots and she teaches classes. So she's she's a really she's been a really great resource and inspiration to me. And then there's also um, Jolene Lupo, and she works at Penumbra uh, Tintype Foundation, which is I believe out of New York. But that is all dedicated to preserving like wet plate photography from the 1800s. Um, So broadly, uh, especially with tintypes, like with with any shot, could you walk us through kind of your thought process when you're setting up? Because you don't normally just take a like a holiday snap. So what goes into that? So what I I usually do um, when I get inspired or I kind of like have an idea or thought or a vision, I'll like grab one of my sketchbooks and I'll just sketch out an idea, a rough idea, or maybe a really specific idea of a frame that I want to shoot. I'll pull out that book on the weekend. I reference an image and I try to kind of reconstruct it or build it the way that I, you know, I originally saw it in that book or in that sketch, I should say. Um, so that's kind of like where my mind goes. Sometimes I just, I feel like the light's really good outside and I need to take a natural light exposure. Or maybe I found something really awesome at a, an, an antique store and I feel like it has a really good story or energy to it and I want to capture that. Like, how can I gather other things around it to make it feel like it belongs and it has a story? Does this preference for alternative and antique processes carry over anywhere else in your life? Yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. Not surprising. Um, yeah, I know, right? I feel like I'm sorry. I, I probably answered this on everything, but yeah, I from a really young age, I've always really loved history. I thought it was so weird that our world existed in a different time, I, and I just would look at old photos and think, like, wow, the things in those old photos existed. They probably might be still around today. Like, look at how people dressed and, um. So I don't know. I feel like my whole life is just this weird balance of like living in modern day and juxtaposed with um, old antique historical um, items and places and things and, and processes. And I just I feel like there's I always have this hunger to learn more or know more, or go to more places that had some some sort of like big impact on where we are today and. I think a lot of people are so quick, especially today's world, to forget like where we came from and what made us, who made us, who made us who we are today, and what made us who we are today, and um, and just kind of bringing that together, I think, brings order to my mind. If that makes sense, I don't know, but that's just kind of how I see it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, oh, I want to go shoot now. <laughs> I'm inspired. <laughs> 
Uh, okay, so we got we got one more question, mm-hmm. and it's the question that we'll be asking listeners to call in about for the next episode. But how has cinematography and the movies, how has that influenced your work and the way you shoot? I, long before I went to Gettysburg, and I and when I was growing up even, I my family was kind of cool. They, they would watch old movies all the time. So I feel like I kind of grew up on black and white movies, at least. I feel like... For some reason, To Kill a Mockingbird, that movie, <laughs> I I don't know what, it, that beginning scene where Scout, I think, is just playing with all of these objects in the um, in her box. Yeah. There's marbles. There's stuff that Boo, Boo Radley put in, you know, that tree, the hollowed out tree. Uh-huh. And just, just the detail and just the way that was shot and how, like, what a, it's just almost like... Um, used a micro lens or something to just get this great detail and texture on all these items. And I just felt like such a connection to that, that, that piece. Um, And then the whole movie has this kind of, kind of spooky, kind of eerie feel to it. I don't know that the, the cinematographer captured so well. So I think like I was first really inspired by that movie. Um, yeah, I know. It's I don't it's such a great movie. It it's is, such a great yeah. book. It's such a good book. It's like it one is. of my favorites. So I kinda grew up watching that and being like, Scout is the coolest. So um <laughs> I wanna be Scout. She is. Um, yeah, she's awesome. So yeah, I think just the way that some of the night scenes in that movie were filmed, I, I just like there's such a sense of like history and the South and uh, just, I don't know, just great aesthetic. So I, I just remember from a really young age thinking there was something special about that film. And, um, and also just really briefly, like I would just sit at home and sometimes watch uh, Turner classic movies. Oh yeah. And they would do segments or they would do week long, uh, you know, uh, just features on old silent movies. And I thought the Swedish uh, silent film era from like the 1900s to the 1920s, they would show some of those movies. And I, I remember that blowing me away. I I don't know what it was. There was just something about the lenses, the film they shot it on. It's just all of these, I don't know, the aesthetic that they captured in those too was just, it just like made my imagination. Like it just went on fire. I just thought like some of the landscapes were so romantic, the way they did night shots. I mean, the way that they would frame someone's face. I don't know. I just got a real sense for the time and the era and like they just really spoke to me. So I'd have to say uh, the Swedish silent films, all silent films, but especially those really like spoke to me. Wow. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I know. Kind of random. I know. (laughs) (laughs) There it is. Thank you so much for hanging out and chit chatting a bit. Oh, anytime. My pleasure. Thank you both for having me on here. It's been been amazing. So again, thank you. All right. Well, we will see you on Instagram. Okay, you guys. All right. right, We'll chat later. Take it easy. You too. All right. Bye. 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 Our next story starts in 1861 at the beginning of the Civil War with a 30-year-old jewelry engraver named William Mumler. On the way to his shop one day, he spied a photographer named Mrs. Hannah Green Stewart. Mumler was known as an honest man, trustworthy, but he was also described as a man whose eyes took in more than they gave out. And his eyes most certainly took in Mrs. Stewart. The missus might have dissuaded him, but Hannah, it seems, was a war widow. This was not the only quality of hers enjoyed by Mumler. Through her, he became interested in photography and would help her around the shop. 
So much about this story is unknown. For instance, it's unknown what Mumler thought of her side business, braiding the hair of customers' dead relatives to make necklaces and rings and watch chains and things like that. Very Victorian. It is, however, known that he didn't exactly share her enthusiasm for spiritualism. So I want to stop you right there. Let's talk about spiritualism really quick in okay. this century. <laughs> in, yeah, in the 1800s. It, yeah, it seems like every movie you see, you see a bunch of people like all gathered around, you know, and they're trying to talk to their, you know, recently deceased family members. Sure. Um, what is this all about? So yeah, that's basically, that's basically it, really. <laughs> There's no like actual doctrine. There was no church of spiritualism. There was no organization to it. It was just a, a general belief where people generally believed that they could communicate with the dead. Was this popular? Like a lot of people or was it just like a... Yeah, I mean, it was it was a, a pretty huge religion at the time. So big that even Mary Todd Lincoln was involved in it. They believed that the spirits wouldn't just talk to them, but would actually give advice and help them along their own spiritual journey. Mostly, yeah, this was done like through seances and, and mediums. A lot of those mediums were, t- were true believers, but a lot of them were kind of frauds and trying to make a buck off of the practitioners. So Mrs. Stewart was into spiritualism. How deep did that go? She was actually a medium. Uh, she seemed to, to believe or at least want others to believe that she could communicate with the dead. That was kind of her thing, along with photography. So Hannah was a a true believer, but Mumler almost definitely wasn't. But regardless, their friendship, they grew closer, and uh, she taught him the art of photography, really, and how to take pictures, how to process them. He worked in her lab kind of as as a hobby. And that leads to the event, the event that started it all in 1862. And Mumler has left us an account of how this event happened, and we'll let him take it here. One Sunday, while alone in the gallery, I attempted to get a picture of myself, and then it was that I first discovered, while developing it, that a second form appeared upon the plate. At this time, I had never heard of spirit pictures, although I had been somewhat interested in the doctrine of spiritualism. At first, I labored under what is now the general impression, that the plate upon which the picture was taken could not have been clean, and that the form which showed itself beside my own must have been left on the glass, and I so stated to my employer and others. Subsequent attempts, however, made under circumstances which preclude such a possibility, have confirmed me in the belief that the power by which these forms are produced is beyond human control. So Mumler claimed that he knew basically nothing about photography or the chemical process of developing or anything like that. And he used that to say that he didn't know how these spirits magically appeared on his negative out of nowhere. And while he said he didn't understand it, Hannah seemed to know just what was up. It was, she said, a portrait of a spirit who had left her body behind yet had taken this method of communicating with those yet in bondage to the flesh. But as time went on, Mumler added a little bit more to the story, telling people that not only did this spirit just magically show up on the glass, but he recognized this young woman to be his cousin, who had died 12 years before. And before you know it, Mumler left his own business and devoted himself to the art of spirit photography. Okay, but this is based on Mumler's own version of events, right? Yes. Like, how are you getting all all this? All of this... Every single word is from Mumler. This is the story Mumler wanted us to know. Okay. 
So it's definitely true. It's <laughs> definitely true. Absolutely. <laughs> 100%. So the first successful spirit photo was an accident? Probably not. Uh, we'll find out that that's probably not an accident. But he did want us to believe it was. So it's pretty obvious that the woman's probably not his cousin. No, uh, probably not. Okay, and now they're in business together. Yeah. And they're charging people for these spirit photos. Yes. Do you know how much they were charging? They were charging uh, $10 for a sitting. Okay. Uh, and that's about $250 in today's money. And this was, a, yeah, this was about four times the rate of a regular sitting, which is actually a pretty good price. For a regular photo, you can't get a wet plate taken now for that price. Oh, definitely not now. But I mean, that seems absolutely insane to charge that much. And like people pay it, obviously, because they, they're distraught. They're sad. They miss their loved one. So here, take all my money. Yeah, yeah basically. <laughs> so Hannah and William, they grew their business together and they grew their love together. They soon got married. Ah. So I guess she really was a war widow of some kind. Anyway, her husband was out of the picture. How is that to like marry again? That was if you're a widow, that's fine. Okay. At, at the time, I mean, you have like a year wait <laughs> for social. I mean, for social reasons. Yeah, of course. But yeah, yeah, you could remarry. Yeah, that was a pretty common thing because everybody fucking died. But even though they were married, Mumler said anyway that he kept all of his spiritual powers to himself. That he didn't know how these things happened, but in public. He said that his camera could capture what the eye couldn't see. And many of his happy customers were thrilled that the figures uh, sort of looking like their long dead relatives could, could now be seen alongside them again in photographs. So they got so busy that the following year, they kind of changed their business model a little bit to accommodate more people and really get more money. Now the customers didn't even have to show up for the sitting. All they needed to do was send a vivid description of their dead loved one and 7.50, and in three weeks, they'd receive a photo of the departed from beyond the grave. So this was pretty clear to everybody that it was kind of a scam. Uh, even the spiritualists were starting to take notice. Did they get negative feedback from the true believers? Yeah, they, they did. The spiritualists, especially people making money off of spiritualism, were, it was pretty competitive, and they knew that the mumblers were raking in cash. So it was kind of in their best interest to figure out how they were scamming because they themselves were probably scamming people. Well, so then that's my second question, skeptics. And like, did, you know, anybody test him? Yeah, uh, almost right away. There were a couple of photographers who were you know, professional photographers for years and years, and they put him to the test and they couldn't figure out how he did it. But he was pretty insistent upon using his own chemicals, which isn't that crazy of a thing. If you're a developer, you know, you might like a certain developer over others or need a certain developer in this case, because you've mixed your own emulsion. But they, the photographers did notice that while he uses all of his own equipment, that the more closely they watched him, the less likely it was that Mumler could actually produce a spirit photo. So they knew that he was faking it. They just weren't sure how. But as he got busier, at least according to Mumler, the spirits became restless and didn't want the skeptics around anymore. And so he refused to entertain them after a certain time. But even without the skeptics, other people started to point out pretty obvious flaws. Like if there's a dead person in the photo who had died, say, 50 years ago, why was he wearing modern clothes? How did that happen? Did you get a new wardrobe when you get to heaven? I guess so. <laughs> it just didn't make sense to them. And when the criticism went public, Mumler noticed it 
and the spirits began to dress a, a little bit more old-fashioned, and this change was also noticed. So everything is building up against Mumler, slowly but surely, sensing a downfall. So what happens? Okay, well, yeah, he, he did have a downfall, and it began kind of accidentally. There was a spiritualist named John Latham, and he was a true believer, hard to say, but he received one of Mumler's spirit photos from a friend. But the spirit in the photo, it seemed a little too familiar to him. It looked, it looked like, I've seen this spirit somewhere before, he said. In fact, another friend of his had a spirit photo by Mumler with the exact same spirit in it in the exact same pose. And they both had a mutual friend who was still alive, who turned out to be the spirit in question. They showed her the picture, and she's like, yeah, that's my picture. I sat for it a few years ago at Hannah Stewart's photographic gallery. And it kind of all added up for them at that point. So that was it. Business over. Um, In a way. It was bad. This was really bad for the Mumblers. This was, we got to do something drastic. We can't save it at this point. So they closed up shop and moved to New York City. It was now 1865. And the end of the Civil War gave them a whole new customer base of grieving widows and childless parents. Uh, Mumler would insist that it was he and he alone who could reunite the living and the dead. Their business in New York continued basically the same as it did in Boston. Uh, and they were doing pretty well for about four years. And then, it, and then City Hall kind of got word of what they were doing. And complaints came in, some fraud complaints. And so they sent an undercover investigator to check it out. And so there's this guy named Marshall Tooker. He pretended to be a customer. He went into Mumler's studio and he asked for a portrait of himself and his dead father-in-law together again. And Mumler said, yeah, sure, I can do that for you. And Tooker sat for the portrait. And when the photo was developed, the spirit in the photo was not Tooker's dead father-in-law at all. It was just some rando. Of course, there, there was no dead father-in-law to begin with. Tucker concocted the story to catch Mumler in the act, and he did. After Mumler accepted payment for the items, he was arrested and brought up on fraud charges. It was, I think, two felonies and a misdemeanor. It was pretty serious stuff. And so that went to trial. The trial was before a single judge, not a jury. So witnesses from both sides, they debated both the... Uh, the, the nature of photography and of spirit photography and photographic techniques, and both used the Bible to support their causes and their ideas. Supporters of Mumler gave testimony that they, I, I've seen my dead mother in this photo. And detractors insisted that Mumler was a fraud, but they couldn't explain how he did it. It attracted quite a lot of attention. Even, even P.T. Barnum testified against Mumler. Wait, so how did P.T. Barnum get involved? Well, I mean, P.T. Barnum kind of is involved in everything at this point. Uh, he had bought four or five spirit prints off of Mumler back in uh, 1862, right when he first started. Uh, Barnum hung them up in his American Museum, and but uh, his big thing was debunking mediums. He was big into hoaxes, and he didn't get like, the Fiji mermaid and that kind of stuff. He was big into that stuff. But he really had it out for spiritualists and mediums, really hated them. And though he loved like weird stuff, he never believed Mumler's story. He always figured that there's something not right about it. And he actually got pretty specific. He devoted an entire chapter to Mumler in his book called Humbugs of the World. In the end, the judge decided that since the prosecution couldn't prove how Mumler was fabricating the photos, that they also couldn't prove that Mumler was fabricating the photos. 
Mumler was freed, and as the story goes, his business never recovered. So that was it. Okay, so it's done. So now they're they quit. Oh, uh, <laughs> completely. No, <laughs> you can't. No, you you really you can't stop people like this. Business definitely declined for them. That seems pretty true, but he still had his supporters. And he also had vindication from the court. You know, I'm found not guilty of fraud, so I must be not defrauding you. So, but they didn't stick around New York. They moved back to Boston and reopened the studio. Wait, so they moved back? Yeah, to Boston. Didn't they close their shop because of this? There, I mean, didn't people remember? <laughs> I don't know. See, at this point, the story isn't Mumler's. Okay. And it's... It's a really difficult story to piece together. A lot of places will say that they just stopped. So where is the story coming from, like, at this point? You can get a lot from newspaper articles all the time, uh, but they only go up to about the trial. And after the trial's done, they kind of lose track of Mumler. And because they lost track of Mumler, the two books about Mumler, uh, one is called The Strange Case of William Mumler, Spirit Photographer by Louis Kaplan. That is mostly primary documents, so... It also sort of loses track of them after the trial. And the other one called The Apparitionists by Peter Manso is, it's a good read, I guess. It's not a good history book. And it kind of also sort of trails off at the end. But because of that, we don't know a whole lot to a point. But we do have some evidence of Hannah at this time. She seemed to kind of get out of the photography business altogether. Instead of a medium, she advertised herself as a clairvoyant healer. In 1870, she advertised a great clairvoyant blood remedy to cure all diseases of the blood, liver, and spleen. And eight years later, and this is getting a little bit ahead, she rebranded herself again as a mesmeric physician healing through animal magnetism. This era is so funny to me. They're just all the potions, <laughs> all these cure-alls. And then I forget, oh my gosh, we still have all those things like natural medicine or as it's called now, progressive medicine. Yeah. And we have homeopathy, which was a huge thing then. And it was just as fake then as it is now. It's just <laughs> magic water. It doesn't do a damn thing. Uh, as far as Mumler himself goes, we do have some evidence that he did a few more spirit photos and he probably did a lot more. One of the photos that he did was of a medium named Master Herod, and the photo is ridiculous. It's it's Herod kind of slumped over, and he looks like he's dead. I thought it was a memento mori, to be honest. And there are spirits floating all around him. It's hilarious. Uh, I want to see this picture. Yeah, it, Where is it? We'll, well, we'll find it. We'll put it up. We'll definitely, okay, we'll definitely okay. share it around. It's worth it, because it's fucking ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> another customer wrote, uh, kind of a kind of a testimonial in a newspaper claiming that in 1871, after the Mumlers moved back to Boston, Mumler captured what he said was an excellent image of my own mother, as well as an Indian who had been a guardian spirit of mine for many years, which was a, a weird common thing at the time. And I guess we kind of do that with like the, the whole spirit animal bullshit. But they had one famous customer, after they returned to Boston, and that was Mary Todd Lincoln. She wanted a photo of herself and her recently dead husband, President Abraham Lincoln. And they took it. This was likely the last photo of Mary Todd. I know a little bit about Mary Todd Lincoln. I know that she was heavy into spiritualism, 
after her son Willie died, like a decade before, right? Yeah, she became super, super into spiritualism, even having seances in the White House. And Lincoln oh. was was cool with it because, you know, his wife was grieving in some pretty horrible ways. Their son it was a pretty sudden death. And she claimed to be able to talk to her son and interacted with him on a daily basis. It was It's kind of a devastating story. And the Mumlers took advantage of that. Uh, she went up to Boston wearing a disguise and wanted, you know, said, hey, can you take a picture of me and my, my son, Willie? And somehow or another, and this is not known, really, somehow or another, she left the shop kind of unhappy uh, with a portrait of herself and what she believed was her dead brother, who was, ironically enough, a Confederate soldier who had been killed in battle. I think she gave them a description of both her son and her brother. Okay. And Mumler picked the brother rather than the son because, you know, well, you know, spirits d- spirits are doing what spirits do. The story with Mary Todd and the Mumlers is, is kind of a strange one. There's evidence that she sat at least one time prior to this for them, uh, possibly in the 1860s, probably 1865, and probably before Abraham Lincoln died. There's a photo just of, of her, just a, a portrait. No spirits, no nothing weird about it, just a regular portrait. But for some reason or another, the Mumlers claimed to have never taken a photo of Mary Todd prior to the spirit photo in the 1870s. But most of Mumler's later years weren't really devoted to spirit photography at all, but to something that was called the Mumler process. This involved electrotypes. Uh, he even patented it in the early 1870s and founded the photoelectrotype company. This was sort of a precursor to halftoning. He invented a process that would essentially turn a negative into a stamp that could be used in a newspaper press. Prior to this, photos couldn't be mass printed at all. Publications had to hire engravers to literally redraw the image as, the, as a woodcut so that it could be printed. Mumler devoted the rest of his life to this technique, even experimenting with instant photography. He died in 1884, and his obituary hardly mentioned his career as a spirit photographer at all. So that's it? We're not going to hear how he captured the spirit photos? Did anyone figure that out? Well, I mean, one of the reasons he was acquitted is because this technique of his couldn't be reproduced. So nobody at the time really knew how it was doing it. And so while double exposures are easy to do today, they seem to be like a big mystery in the 1860s. There were some experiments with stereoscopes where they could take two images and beam them both onto the same negative that were pretty successful. And you could do spirit photography with that, and some people did. But this wasn't what Mumler was doing. That was pretty obvious. His cameras were normal cameras. And so it's not even really clear if if it was a true double exposure at all. Yeah, I'm still not getting it. So walk me through a sitting. What was it like? In Barnum's book, Humbugs of the World, he kind of goes into that, uh, what the sitting was like. And you'd go into Mumler's shop, say, I want a picture of my mom. She had this type of curl. She had this kind of face. She's like, yay tall. Mumler would go back through a bunch of old negatives, pick out one that matched that description, and then would somehow make that appear on the photo he gives you. But we don't know even today how he did it. Uh, it's it's really obvious that the spirits were just people that Hannah and eventually Mumler himself had photographed prior to this. But we just don't know when the image was made. Was it in the dark room? Was it in camera? We just don't know. 
But either way, it required a sleight of hand and very possibly a technique invented by Mumler. While his business was successful at the end, at the end of his life, his fame as a spiritual photographer kind of outlived him, and he's still kind of known as the father of spirit photography. This was often aided by sloppy journalists and writers who left their conclusions open to the interpretations of the readers. Essentially, Mumler was a fraud, making a small fortune off of the gullibility and sadness of the bereaved. He preyed upon them, he abused their trust by purposely deceiving his customers and even his friends. We're doing something a bit different for the next episode. Every couple of months, we're going to watch a movie that has something to do with photography and then discuss it. We'll bring on a guest, get their take on it, and hopefully have some interaction with you guys too. The movies we pick will generally not be documentaries about photographers, but movies that are in some way associated with photography. For our first movie, we're doing Rear Window. The one with Christopher Reeve? No, not the one with Christopher Reeve. Uh, this is the, the Hitchcock film from 1954 with Jimmy Stewart, Grace Kelly, and Thelma fucking Ritter. Now, you've seen this one before or no? I haven't. <laughs> you have not seen <laughs> Rear Window. That's okay. It's okay. There's no shame in having not seen something before. But there is going to be some shame if you don't watch it before the next episode. So let's. Get I will. On that. I have Good. to watch it a few times for sure. Yeah. So uh, you guys should probably own this one, but if you don't, it's about ten dollars to buy on Blu-ray on Amazon. I don't know if anybody even uses Blu-rays anymore. Uh, Only you. We are lamenting the death of physical medium on on a photography podcast about film. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> Whether you've seen this one or not, it would probably be a good idea to watch it again before the next episode. And in celebration of movie night, our next answering machine question is, how has cinematography and movies in general influenced your work and the way you shoot? Yes, think about it. And leave us a voice message on Instagram at allthroughalens.podcast. And that about does it for the show today. But before we go, we'd like to congratulate friends of the show, Karen and Colleen, who recently tied the knot. Hope you crazy kids make it. Yay! If you'd like to contact us, we're at allthroughalens.podcast on Instagram. By email, it's allthroughalens.podcast at gmail.com. We are... Well, kind of on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, we Wait. are. I, I don't know what it... What is it? I don't know. What's their Twitter? I've, I'm not really sure. If, if I know me, I know that I'm going to be bad at Twitter. So we're <laughs> there. And it's, uh, what is it? At all through a lens on Twitter. So follow us or don't. I really don't know what's going on with that. We Still no Facebook. No. Still no website. Uh, probably not a website. Maybe a website. We're working on a website. We may be working on a website. I really don't know. Anyway. <laughs> Vanya is Surf Martian. And Eric is Conspiracy of Cartographers. Both on Instagram. We also do a Spotify playlist for each episode, so check those out and see what we're listening to. Just search all through a lens. You can also find our episodes on Spotify, as well as on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and wherever the hell else you find podcasts. Subscribe and leave a review. It's actually quite helpful. The music you're hearing now is from Last Regiment of Syncopated Drummers, which you can find at lastregiment.com. Okay, see you in a couple of weeks. Vanya? Yes. You want to go out and shoot? Fuck yeah, I do. Let's go. <laughs> oh, baby, kitty. Oh, so 
So good. So good. So good. Oh my god, you're such a shit.